the least Mother's Day-ish sermon you are ever going to hear. Um, We're in the book of Colossians, and we're dealing with some really deep and robust theology, probably one of the most theologically profound statements in all of Scripture that's made. So we'll get there in a moment, but a couple uh, introductory reminders. One, uh, our Colossians small group curriculum is available in the back when you leave this church building right on the outside. There's a table where you can pick up that curriculum. It has the small group. Actually, do they have it in the back? I'll do this. We talked about this, and we're going to do it. If you do not have our small group curriculum, which we usually ask you to chip in to cover printing costs, just eight bucks, if you raise your hand in this service, we will do a special 100% off if you don't have it, Mother's Day special for this service only. If you want that and you don't have it, you can raise your hand and someone will give you one for free. Right here. Look at some of you. I know some of you guys already got one. You're just trying to come up on a couple other ones. Okay, perfect, perfect. So uh, in addition to that small group curriculum at the back uh, of the church, we also have our first ever children's book that we did. We, we put it out last week. That's free of charge. It's a children's book kind of summarizing the Prodigal Son series, which we did last um, series. So for those four weeks, if it didn't make sense or you fell asleep, we condensed it down and called it a children's book so that you can, without shame, read that to your child and get all the stuff that you missed in the service. The third thing, uh, really good news, our high school um, ministry will be having their first service in a new location. Some of you who have been at South Valley for a while will remember some, some, a building called the Sanctuary Cafe. Raise your hand if you remember that. Okay, so we, we moved out of that building and moved our high, schooler to a small, our high school ministry to a smaller space several years back. Well, we've reacquired that, and so directly behind this building, that direction, is our new youth center, and they're having their first service there. It's a bigger space, larger space, better space, so that's going to be really cool. If you guys want to check it out, you can do that in the coming weeks. Uh, next introductory statement. Man, there was a lot. Had National Day of Prayer. Here Thursday, which was great, that's kind of like a, an event that we do for the community. Our vision here is to be a regional church, so it's not just about doing things for this church and our people, but for the community at large. So we had civic leaders from um, city reps to the chief of police, chief of uh, fire, all kinds of people here just to gather to pray for that day, which was really cool. And lastly, I actually had to uh, take a picture of this because I was so impressed Last week we did family service day where a few hundred of us went and served the community in different, different ways where the dispatch wrote an article on one of the projects. One of the projects was cleaning the red barn at Christmas Hill. I want you to, I wasn't there at the red barn, but I heard it was pretty bad. And I want you to, to, to read what they said about this cleanup project that South Valley Community Church did. Inside the structure had become home to dozens of feral cats flocks of pigeons and skunks, all of which left behind their waste. This is the dispatch. Indeed, comma, among the items found and taken to the dump were partially rotten bodies of dead cats. So here's why I read that. that. That is actually probably in the top five most proud moments I've been of our church. I'm serious. Because in the dispatch, they are noting that there's a group of people, Christians from South Valley Community Church, who don't just sit inside their church building and sing songs to Jesus, but they're willing to go and serve their community and serve their community and get dirty doing it. You know, so you guys who were there, awesome job to you. You hauled away Garfield and took took him away. Yeah, amazing job on that. 
So may the people of Gilroy know that we get our hands dirty and we love and care about our community. So Colossians now. Uh, Like I said, today is deep, one of the most theologically rich passages in the entire Bible. Um, I'm going to do my best to make it make sense. If there's times you feel yourself drifting and you're, you're missing some things, stay, stay with me. I'm going to try to bring it together, make it make sense, and tie it, tie it together and do it um, relatively briefly. There's a lot of things to cover, but most people on this day are already thinking about the cool restaurant they're going to, so I won't put you through that pain and trial and tribulation if you have somewhere awesome to eat after this. Um, I won't go an hour and a half. We'll keep it to an hour and 20 That's a joke. That's a joke. Okay, so uh, if you missed last week, you can listen to the audio online, but essentially the the point of, of the message was this. Paul is writing a letter to Christians in a city called Colossae, and the Christians in this city called Colossae are wrestling with something called syncretism. Syncretism is a fancy word that's trying to articulate when two incompatible beliefs are trying to be slammed together. So think two belief systems that are actually incompatible, but someone's trying to put them together. An example of this would be believing in karma and claiming to be a Christian. Why? Because in karma, you get what you deserve. Specifically, you get what you deserve in the next life. Christianity says, because of what Jesus has done, you will not get what you deserve in the next life. If you got what you actually deserved in the next life, it would be a bad thing. But because of the work of Jesus, it is a good thing. So it's two incompatible belief systems. But people believe opposing systems all the time. Uh, last week I made the joke, go, go to, to downtown Santa Cruz and ask someone what they believe, and you're going to hear a variety of different thoughts and strains from different religions, and they don't internally cohere. So what's going on in Colossae is that there is this mix between sort of this um, Old Testament Jewish thought with the street-level paganism and mysticism of the day, and then they're trying to mix Christianity with that. So you have like Old Testament, New Testament, paganism, mysticism, they're trying to put it all together. And essentially, the question comes down to this. Who is Jesus, and what are the implications of his life, death, and resurrection? There's people going around in the city of Colossae that are saying Jesus is a good thing, but in addition to Jesus, you need this, and you need this, and you need this. And Paul is writing saying, are you kidding me? Jesus is the sufficient grounds, just like Drew said in that last song we sang. Jesus is the gospel, and what he's done is complete. It's a finished work. So, uh, in order to kind of picture wrestling with Jesus and the implications of his death, I need you to to imagine a hypothetical fictional situation where Paul the Apostle has invited some friends over for dinner. He's invited a a Mormon, a Muslim, a Jehovah's Witness, and an atheist. And they're having a good time. They're eating dinner. The Mormon's avoiding coffee. The Muslim's avoiding the the pork rinds. All kinds of cool stuff. But they're getting along. They're getting along and they're having a good time. Exactly what what Christians should be doing, being friends with, with people of diverse thoughts. After the dinner... Um, it's, it's kind of time to chit-chat, and, and the Mormon speaks up first, and he says, so are we finally going to talk about Jesus, because, you know, we all disagree on this, and we, we said we'd finally talk about this, and the Mormon begins to say, <clears throat> look, what you guys need to understand is that Jesus 
is the son of Elohim, the father. And Jesus was born when the father had physical relationships with Mary, and Jesus was birthed as the son of God. And if we commit to serving God by his grace and our works, we too can be brought in and relate to the father as a son in a very similar sense to Jesus. Now the Muslim interrupts and says, okay, that doesn't even make sense first of all, but let me tell you what the truth is. The Muslim says, Jesus is not the son of God in any unique, profound way. Jesus is a prophet, much like Abraham or Moses or Jeremiah. He's a good guy. We love Jesus, but you, you, you Christians think that he's somehow divine or God. Only Allah is God, and Jesus was one of his prophets. And the Jehovah's Witness interrupts and says, look, somewhere between the Muslim and the Mormon is the right answer. See, we Jehovah's Witness know that Jesus was actually the first created being. He's not God, he was just the first created thing. And he's actually Michael the archangel that's talked about in the Old Testament, but he's come down to earth as Jesus. And the atheist interrupts and goes, this is, this is what's wrong with the world. All you religious freaks just have a random opinion and you sit there and fight about it. Now, we're all cool and we're polite and stuff, but when the angry ones fight about this stuff, then wars break out and violence happens. That's why it really doesn't matter what you believe. Whatever road you take, whatever path you choose, that's good, and if it works for you, I'm happy for you. Just don't force it upon me, don't talk about it to me, and don't get violent with it. And the atheist turns, what do you, what do you think, Paul? And Paul responds with this. It's from Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, Jesus is of utmost importance, and he is the only way to God, because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile in himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." So that short paragraph with all those theological words and concepts is what we're going to cover. It's actually just five verses, and we're going to spend our entire time there. It's two slides, but it's some of the most thick and theologically robust content in the New Testament. Paul says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, c couple thoughts. I'm gonna almost take this word by word, phrase by phrase. I, I put in bold the key concepts here. First, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, if you've been a Christian for some time, when you hear about something being the image of God, what do you first think of? Shout it out. People. Genesis. In Genesis 1, God creates man and woman in his image. 
Human beings are made in the image of God, but Paul is saying that Jesus actually is the perfect image of God. <clears throat> now, a couple of questions should, should come to, to surface. What, what does it mean by image? What are we talking about? Because that is an old, ancient term that we don't use. In Greek, it's akon. Etymologically, that's where we get our word icon from. Um, but image means the essence or the representation of something in kind of ancient Near Eastern terms. It was most popularly used by kings. So if you're the king of Egypt and you're gonna make a decree, you're gonna change some laws in Egypt, one of the things you do and say is you claim to be the very image of God. And the reason for that is if someone challenges you, they don't like your policy, you say, hey, I am the mouthpiece of the gods. I am their image on earth. Questioning me is like questioning the gods. So the image in ancient Near Eastern thought is the one who's not only representing the gods, but given the task to govern and rule and reign on behalf of or in place of the gods. One of the other ways this word was used was in, in temples. Say if you are a pagan and you build a giant new temple to the sun god, the temple is, is incomplete until you make a statue, an image, an icon, an icon of the sun god and you put it in the middle of the temple. And when you finally did that, it was a way of saying, here resides the sun god. His image is here. The image isn't the god, but it is the essence and representation of that God. If you're familiar with uh, the Ten Commandments, you know that God um, commands Israel to never make a graven or a carved what? Image. It says you don't ever, ever make images and you don't ever worship those. And there's two reasons for that. Most Christians get the first part right in the fact that they go, because we don't worship idols or images because there's only one true God. And that's right, but in addition to that, there's a reason why God says, you do not worship images of creation. And the reason for that is because God has already put his image in creation. Men and women being made in his image function as the ones who are given the representative task of doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. The problem is, is we don't do it. We fail miserably at governing this place the way God would will it. So what Paul is saying, in this sense, Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. He is saying that Jesus, if you wanna know what God looks like, if you wanna know what God is like, if you wanna know the characteristics and attributes of God, you look at Jesus. If you wanna know what, how God would act if he was a human, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, because that is God in human flesh. Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. And it says he's the firstborn of all creation. This is a, a tricky concept, but um, in, in English, the word firstborn usually communicates the idea that someone is the first to be born in a line of sons or daughters. So you're like your oldest son or daughter is considered your firstborn. Now the reason why that causes so much confusion when it comes to the Bible is that many people then assume that Paul is saying Jesus is merely a created being. He was the first one that God made. Rather than eternal God, he's just like a super angel. He's the firstborn. 
Now, if you love, if you love geeky Greek words, here, here's something you can write down. Prototokos is what this, this word means, first, or what this word is in Greek, firstborn. And in Jewish thought, it doesn't just mean the first one to be born, it means the one who's first in rank or authority. So in Psalm 89, David is called the firstborn son. But if you know about David, he's actually not the first one to be born. He's actually a whole lot of kids down the line. But he is called the firstborn, not because he's the first one to come out, but he is the first in rank and authority, prototokos. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the prototokos over all creation, the one with the rights of the firstborn, the preeminent authoritative one. For by him all things were created. Now last week I touched on this, but when we talk about Jesus being the creator of all things, you need to understand how crazy that statement is. Science every single day is giving us new information telling us the world is far bigger and grander than we could ever imagine. It's also telling us that the world, the universe, is far, far smaller than we could ever imagine. For instance, um, our Milky Way galaxy alone has give or take between 100 and 2 billion stars. 100 to 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And the Hubble telescope a while back confirmed that at minimum, there's 100 to 200 billion galaxies. So 100 billion stars in our little Milky Way galaxy, and there's about 100 to 200 billion of those galaxies. At minimum, the world is huge. It is massive. No matter how far you go, no matter how complex the universe is, no matter how mysterious it is, Paul is saying Christ made that. There is not a square inch of the created order in which Jesus does not look down and say, this belongs to me. On the opposite end, the universe is becoming incredibly small. For instance, your human body has at minimum 37 trillion cells. 37 trillion. That's 37 with like 36 zeros behind it or something. It's ridiculous. I don't even know what it is. I just made that up. 37 trillion. I can't even picture 37 trillion. It's like our debt. <laughs> when they try to explain national debt, there's a point at which you just go, this doesn't make any sense. I had an app on my phone, my, the first iPhone I ever got, it was like the, the greatest app there was, was a debt counter and it was live and it just kind of was showing you how fast it's growing and my brain can't even fathom it. 37 human cell, cells in the human body. There are hundreds of billions of cells that are incredibly complex living organisms that just make up a small tip of, of, of your finger. If you were to extract a drop of blood from that fingertip, in that one drop of blood there would be five million red blood cells alone. And science has told us that the amount of atoms in a single human cell is about a hundred times the number of stars there are in the Milky Way galaxy. However big the universe is, however small the universe is, Christ has made all of it. And that is a radical, startling, fascinating claim, both in the ancient world and in the modern world. 
He created everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Here's an important concept. Creation existence is here for Jesus. It may not sound profound, but let let me phrase it another way. If creation exists for Jesus, then by implication, the world doesn't exist for you. And you're like, yeah, no, no doubt we get it. <laughs> Do we? Look at our culture. How many of us live as if the world, the cosmos, revolves around us? It's not about you. Creation exists to bring glory to the Son of God. And the, the amazing thing about it all is that's not at a cost to you you will only find what you're looking for when you assume your proper role in the universe and begin to worship this Jesus. And until things, that happens, something's always gonna be off in your life. Something's not gonna be right. Creation exists for him, not, not for you. And, and if, if you're under the age of 30, look at me right now. Look at me. It's not about you. It really isn't. And, and I know it's easy to pick on, on millennials and young people. Um, so all, all the, the older people who are laughing at them, you fed them this. Our young people were brought up on this nonsense. Boomers, Gen Xers, they love to hate on millennials. They, they learned it somewhere. If you live your life thinking everything revolves around you and that you're entitled to something, you deserve something, you're always gonna be miserable. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. He's before him and in him all things hold together. This This is probably even more crazy than the idea that Jesus has made everything. That in him all things hold together. 37 million, 37 trillion microscopic organisms. There are hundreds of billions of living organisms that compose my hand. Have you thought about how weird it is that I can think a thought and move fingers? He's like, this guy's kind of weird. What does that even mean? Think about that. That is bizarre. I think something and trillions of little microscopic living organisms instantly respond. What keeps them together? What holds my hand together? What keeps electrons circling the nucleus? What keeps the gravitational force constant? What keeps planets in orbits? Paul's claim is that Christ is not only the creator, but he is actually the sustainer. He is the cosmic glue, if you will, holding all of this together. Every cell, every atom, every blink of your eye, every heartbeat. Think about it like this. Take a breath. Christ is intimately involved. He is personally sustaining by his power the laws that make it possible for you to do that. It would all fall apart. What's interesting, um, we, we live in a place that's like Colossae where this book is being written. We have earthquakes. And the reason why many people are, t- raise your hand if you're like really scared of earthquakes. People are just talking about it. It's like, oh my gosh. And then I hope he's not going to remind us that it's been like 30 years and scientists say that at any time it's all going to come. 
It's, it is, it's true. <laughs> the reason why that's so scary is because you have a solid ground and all of a sudden the, the fabric that holds that together begins to tear apart. The ground shakes and even sometimes the ground will actually split. The idea of what you stand on being ripped apart is terrifying. Think about creation from the cells to planets to stars. Everything is perfectly balanced and it's all held together. If Christ were to stop sustaining that, reality itself would be undone. He holds all things together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. There's this concept again. Now Jesus is described as the firstborn from the dead. Um, I'm going to explain a concept that's rooted in Jewish thought for you. We've done it a few times in the past, but it's important to review um, because it will make the Bible make sense for you, and it'll make Colossians make a whole lot more sense. But in order order to understand what Paul is saying by Jesus the firstborn from the dead, you have to kind of put your mind in the place of a Jewish mind in the first century. And in that day... Um, Jewish people believe that time would be split into two parts. There is the first part of time, which is the present age. That's the age that we live in. Um, in Hebrew, alam hazeh. It's the alam hazeh, the present age. We're all living in that right now. But there will come a day where God ushers in a new age. That's the age to come, the olam haba. So you have the present age and the age to come. The present age is often called the present evil age. Why? Look around. Things are really bad. There's suffering. There's pain. There's brokenness. There's war. There's famine. Just look at the news. It's, it's like, I, I, I need some, actually, some investors. I'm going to start a GoFundMe account. I'm going to start a news channel. It's going to be called the Happy News Channel. We don't report any of the bad stuff. It's just happy stuff all the time so that when you get, like, just overwhelmed by all the crazy things, you just can turn over for 15 minutes and see, like, puppies being born or something like that. But the present age is full of heartache and suffering and sorrow, the present evil age. Jews had this belief that the God who created the world would one day end that suffering and usher in the age to come, where he would destroy evil, wickedness, dictators, and tyrants, and the world would finally be at peace. That's the olam haba, the age to come. Now, here's the interesting thing. Every Jewish person in the time of Jesus thought that at a single point in history, the present age would flip over to the age to come and that God would fix the world in one instance. What's happening in the New Testament is something crazy. See, in that one instance where the age to come would be ushered in, there was a number of things that were supposed to happen. One, God would forgive sin. Two, God would put a Jewish king and exalt him as a king of kings, and he were to rule and to govern and do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Three, there would be the resurrection of the dead. So anyone in human history in the present age who has died and was, was a follower of God, who was worthy and suffered an injustice, they would be brought back to life to live in harmony with God. And the fourth thing that would happen is God would completely destroy evil. 
So review those. When the age to come was to occur, there was going to be forgiveness of sins, a new king, resurrection of the dead, and the end of evil. What happens in the Gospels is that Jesus comes in and he brings God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, but not completely. He also brings the age to come into the present evil age, but not completely. So when Jesus comes, do you have forgiveness of sins? Yes. Do you have someone who's now been given the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords, a good king who finally does the will of the Father? Yes. Do you have the resurrection of the dead? What was supposed to occur for all humanity happens first with one person, the Messiah, as if to say this is what God is going to do for all people in the end. Do you have the elimination of evil and suffering? No. The New Testament presupposes that you have this understanding of time. The New Testament assumes that you know that yes, there's the present evil age with all the suffering, but in Jesus, the end goal has come into the present. The future has come into the present. God's kingdom, heaven, has come to our reality, but not completely and not in in totality. So if you guys are, are visual thinkers, Look at it like this. There's the present evil age full of suffering, and then Jesus comes 2,000 years ago, and with him comes forgiveness of sins, a new king, and the resurrection of one person from the dead, namely the Messiah, Jesus. He brings in this olam haba, the age to come, but he's not going to do away with the present age completely and start the age to come until his second coming which means every single person in this room lives between Jesus' first coming and the second coming, this period where the present age and the age to come overlap. Told you this isn't a Mother's Day sermon. (laughs) If you understand this concept, the Bible will make a lot more sense. A lot, the, the, the New Testament authors, they thought this way intuitively. They just, they just knew it. But we don't think like that because we're not first century Jews. So there's, there's verses in the Bible that talk about you as a Christian, you're already seated in heavenly places. And you're like, no, I'm not. Seated in a church pew. How am I seated in a heavenly place? Or it talks about you've been transferred from the present evil domain of darkness into God's glorious kingdom. And you're looking like, it doesn't look like it. It's still, still full of darkness. World's still evil. And because it's assuming this already not yet concept, we're in an overlapping period. Christians, when you do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, you are showing people what God's kingdom will ultimately look like in the age to come. When you give to the poor, when you give to the needy, when you let someone cry on your shoulder, when you love your enemies, when you turn the other cheek, you are giving an example of the way God's kingdom will run for all eternity, but you're doing it in the present, giving people a taste, a kind of signpost of what the future looks like. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That's what that means. Everyone thought resurrection would happen for all of humanity. Jesus is just the first one. Jesus is the signpost. He's the foreshadow of what God is going to do for the whole world. 
He is the firstborn from the dead that in him everything might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Meaning Jesus just didn't have like a little bit, he's like a little bit God or like half God. He is fully God in human flesh. And it, it, it was, was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things. That is the mission of God. That God would reconcile all things back to himself whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The statement, uh, peace by the blood of the cross, has all kinds of kind, uh, echoes and, and familiarity with people in the first century Roman world. See, in the first century Roman world, the Roman Empire claimed to bring peace to the whole world. Caesar, depending upon which Caesar it was, sometimes they were... Well, they were never good Caesars and bad Caesars. They're usually all bad, but they're like less evil. It's sort of like politics. It's like there's variations of, of evil on the spectrum, and every so often you get a, a good guy. But for the most part, the Caesars weren't good guys. He claimed to be a high priest, the high priest to the world. Sometimes he would claim to be the son of God. Sometimes he would claim to be the very image of God. And his kind of claim was that through the Roman Empire, through his kingdom, peace had, be, had, been, brought into the whole, had been brought to the whole world. It would later be almost made into a slogan. You probably heard, remember in history books, Pax Romana, that the peace of Rome has spread through, through all of the world. And what Paul is saying, no, no, it's not the Roman Empire, it's not Caesar that brings peace, it is the peace that's been bought by the blood of the cross, which is crazy ironic, because Rome was bringing peace by the sword. When they had enemies, they'd kill them, they'd slay them, they'd crucify them. Their peace was being bought with blood, but by their victims. God is saying, I have willingly laid down my life at the cross, and by this blood, by dying for my enemies, I am bringing peace to the whole world. It's a radical statement. It's radical 2,000 years ago and radical today. That's, that's, that's pretty much the entire text, just those two slides that we're going to cover. But this is what I want us to think about. Paul is saying that Jesus is both the cosmic and the crucified one. Think about that for a moment. Remember, 100 billion Stars in the galaxy, 100 billion galaxies, 37 trillion cells all working together. The same person who created all of those things, the same person who sustains all of those things, the same person who makes electrons circle the nucleus, the one who is the creator and sustainer of all things, that very power laid the power aside and became the crucified one for humanity. That person laid it down, and by his blood, he has bought our peace. The philosophical schools of the day, they would think that's absolute nonsense. If there was a power that big, there was no way that power would be so stupid enough to love human beings so much that he would then come to earth, and then in addition to coming to earth, he would actually die, and then in addition to dying, he would die on a cross in order to save them. That was nonsense in the first century world. And brothers and sisters, it's pretty much nonsense to the ears that hear it today. Are you kidding me? Jesus dying on a cross? That's the power of the gospel. And when that's preached and taught and communicated, things just happen because God's spirit shows up. Jesus is the cosmic and the crucified one. 
Now, I want to go back to our initial illustration. You have all these different world religions and you have the modern world saying that, hey, we like, your Christians are kind of weird, but if you just stick to yourself and don't really talk about it too much, it's cool. But the, the modern world, much like the ancient world, has a problem when you start saying things like, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus is the only way to God. But Christians for 2,000 years have been insistent, persistent that Jesus is it. There is no other God. He is the only way to find joy, satisfaction. He's the only one, one way to be right with God. You have to have Jesus. Some of you might remember, especially um, if you've been a Christian for more than 20 years, you're going to remember some of these illustrations. Um, how many of you ever seen uh, people explain the gospel like, th- like this? Ra- ra- raise your hand if you've seen this. And it's pretty good. Um, But it's sort of like, hey, there's people on one side of this cliff, and then there's God way over here, and there's this great chasm, this great cliff in between us, and that's that's our human sin. Um, And Christians say, Jesus is the only way that human beings can ever get to God, and so there's other versions of this where... It's kind of hard to read, but there you have man reaching for God, and and he's reaching through good works, religion, money, morality. He's trying to prove himself to God, and then ultimately, none of those things are good enough, so you still fall down to blue flame, which I'm assuming is blue, because I think if I remember correctly, blue is like the hottest flame. Whoever drew this wanted it, man, it's not just fire, it's blue fire. It's really bad. Um, And you're trying to reach to God, but none of those things would cross, and Christians, again, would say something like, Um, Yeah, you fall down in the pit. But Jesus is the way that humanity can finally come to God, and he's the only only way. Um, Now, I have a friend who, who, he he just put out out a book called The Pursuing God, and it it touches on some of this similar stuff. But this is all good, but there's a direction problem when we articulate these pictures. In those pictures, especially the second one, what you have is man trying to get to God through religion, through good works, and then Jesus, the cross comes, and you can finally make your way to God. Here's the big, massive problem with that. The direction in this illustration is that man is trying to get to God, and God is standing on the opposite cliff going, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. You see, the, the direction problem, it, it's communicating humanity really wants to God, but God is kind of playing hard to get. None of those things will ever be good enough. The exclusive claim of Christianity is not necessarily that Jesus is the only way we can get to God. The statement, more accurately put, is Jesus is the only way that God has come to us. He is the only way because it is the only way that God has chosen to get to us. He puts the cross down. He walks across the bridge. Humanity was walking in the other direction. And Jesus goes, what the heck are you doing? And grabs them and puts them on the path to repentance. Jesus is the only way because this is the only way that God has chosen to come to us. See, most people look at the world like, hey, we're all just a bunch of good people trying to to get to God and and some religions provide a a path across the bridge. This will be the best Mother's Day part of the sermon. The Bible's claim is that you're not good. None of us. No one is seeking God. 
None of us are trying to get to him. We've all turned the other way and Jesus has come to us in order to save us. From heaven, he comes to seek out his bride. We didn't go looking for him. He came looking for us. And that's why Paul the apostle would say, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. All things were created through him and for him. He is the only way, the truth and the life. He is the only way to the Father. Now, as I tie all this together, I just want to end on this. Um, Paul's making through these kind of two poetic paragraphs three statements. One is that Christ is supreme. He is top dog. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Two, Christ is sufficient. You don't need good works and and religious deeds and morality or money in order to be in a relationship with God because none of that would ever be good enough. You weren't seeking him. Christ came to save you when you were his enemy. It wasn't like Jesus came to save you on your best day when you finally cleaned up your act, when you were like, you gave your mom the best Mother's Day ever. He, He came to save you when you were his enemy means Christ is sufficient in and of himself because he does all the heavy lifting. He does all the work. Christ is supreme, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the sufficient grounds to to know God. And lastly, he holds all things together. He's sustaining the universe and he's sustaining you right now with the breath you breathe. He is personally involved whether you know it or not even to the people who laugh and mock and rebel against this Jesus, his mercy is keeping them alive. That's how good of a God he is. So how does that work in the practical? You need to learn how to pound these three truths into your life again and again and again. So when you're doubting things, when you're wrestling with things, when you are overcome with fear, and let's be honest, when we look at the news, we look at all that's going on in the world today, there's times when we become fearful. There is is way too much fear in the Christian church. Way too much fear. Everyone's always afraid. Everyone's always warning the sky is going to fall. Look, things matter, but they don't matter as much as this. Christ is king of kings, he's lord of lords, he is seated on the throne, he is sovereign, he is currently ruling and reigning, and he is personally involved in sustaining all things in the cosmos. Fear not what may come tomorrow. So when fear and anxiety try to overtake you, you remind yourself, my God is supreme, he is sufficient, he is sustaining, fear not. When anxiety comes, when worry comes, you say, fear not, Jesus, supreme, sufficient, sustaining. When you look at your life and you're feeling, I could never be a a good enough Christian. I'm never gonna be like those other people. If people knew the real me, if people knew what I did in the past, I have too much shame, too much guilt, too much sorrow. You tell yourself, none of that makes sense. Shut up. Why? Because Christ is supreme. He is sufficient. He does the lifting and he will sustain you through that. When life hits you like a freight train, whether that may be the loss of a job, the loss of a home, the loss of a spouse, whatever it may be, 
You tell yourself, God, I can't ask you to get me through this week or month or year. I just need you to get me through today. You say, you are supreme, you are sufficient, and you will sustain me till I lay my head down, till I'm done crying my last tear. And you pound those truths into your head again and again and again. Christ is the supreme one, he is the sufficient one, he is the sustaining one. If Christians were to live like that, there'd be a whole lot less stuff we see going on, going on. So, maybe make a practice of that, maybe just sometime today, get away, say a prayer to yourself and and remind yourself of those three truths that this changes everything. What Paul says to the Christians in Colossae changes the way we should live. We're gonna transition into probably one of the most awesome things we do in in the year, Um, and it's child dedication. And essentially, it's this. Um, I'm not gonna say much because Janine and Greg are gonna uh, come up and do it, but I just, I wanna tie it into this. Parents are going to be committing their children to serve the Lord and committing themselves to raise their children in the Lord. Parents, pound these truths into your kids in a loving, gentle way. Tell them you love them every day. Tell them Jesus loves them every day. And tell them the good news about Jesus loving them every day is that this Jesus is supreme. They may not get that, but let me tell you, they'll get the word king because all their books and movies have kings and queens and princesses. He's a good king. Tell them he's, they're sufficient. They may not know sufficient, but tell them he's good enough to get you through. And talk, tell them he's sustaining. They may not understand sustaining, but say, it's like the sugary drinks that mom and dad don't want you to drink. When you're tired, you drink them and it gives you just enough to drive me crazy on Mother's Day. Before they come up, I'm just going to say one, one closing words. Uh, Mother's Day is difficult. Some of you um, don't have great relationships with your mom. Some of them have very difficult relationships with moms. Some of you have lost moms. Some of you are moms and, and you've lost babies. Some of you are moms and your kids aren't walking with the Lord. Know with certainty that Christ is supreme, he is sufficient, and he is sustaining, and he is working all things for good for those who trust in him. You may not see it yet, but it's happening. Child dedication says we do something in the present with hope for the future. So with that, we're gonna transition service. Janine and Greg, you guys can come on up. Yeah, at this time, I want to call the families forward who are coming to dedicate their children today. Um, I think they thought we were going to do that after the music, so they might be running a little bit behind. But we have the Rituglianno family, the Hankins family, and the DeLuca family. So come on up with your kids. Make your way up here. And um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about child dedication. We did a class last week where we worked through it. Sometimes people believe that this is about um, some special thing for the kids that's going to set them on track to be believers. In some um, faith, they believe that if they don't dedicate their child, then if their child should happen to pass away, they wouldn't go to heaven. But that's not why we dedicate children here at South Valley. 
really child dedication is about parent dedication. It's more of a commitment and a promise on the part of the parents, and it focuses on them making this covenant with God to um, see their children as treasures entrusted to them for a time by God. And they're committing before you and before the Lord that they will do everything in their power to raise their children in a godly home. And realizing that we don't have all the goods as a parent to do this alone. The job is overwhelming. And, and we don't have everything we need, but we need community. So they're also committing to raising their children in the midst of a church family and a community and receiving um, advice, counsel, and prayer from their brothers and sisters in the Lord. We also talked about how important it is to imagine the end. When you start and your child is little, you're not raising kids, you're raising adults. And so as a parent, you have to think with the end in mind. In fact, we had them in their journal that they work through write a letter to their child for them to read when they're 18 years old. And to think about the qualities that they want to see and want to produce in their children. So it's really about the parents. And so today, we're just super excited to have them here today. Um, Pastor Greg and I are going to be praying over them. And we're going to be showing some slides of their kids that they chose that represent their children's personalities. And so <laughs> first we have um, Luca and Luba Rituglianno. And these aren't babies. These are children. <laughs> but it's never too late as parents to make this commitment before the Lord. And so today they are here to commit to raising Liam and Lulani in a godly home and raise them to be children of faith. They do have them involved in Kids Town and Awana, and, and they're here quite often. And so I'm going to um, pray with them. Pastor Greg's going to anoint you with some oil. Okay. Yeah. Lulani's going, why? <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we anoint, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways that oil is used in Scripture, and, and one of the ways it's cool is that it's, it's, it's about uh, anointing for appointing, uh, where God has raised up leaders. And what's cool is that you, you guys really are being raised up as leaders. Um, your kids, as they grow, as God has a plan for them, parents also are the leaders of the family. So it's really cool to be able to associate um, the idea of anointing oil uh, for this uh, prayer today as well. Awesome. So if you'd bow your head with me, we're going to pray for this beautiful family. Lord, I just want to lift up Luca and, Lu and Luba to you today as they come forward in, in faith to stand before their church family. I pray that you would give them godly wisdom as parents, help them to see their children with your vision. And God, keep it close to their hearts that God must be the center of their home. Lord, we're reminded of the passage that says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And so, Lord, we commit them to you today. We, we just pray for your blessing over this family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 